Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you for uh, being here this morning, for giving us a chance to, um, to wow, walk you in the presence of God, to serve you around his table, and to um, give you a chance to give and invest in his kingdom, and to uh, walk you through the scriptures in a way that I hope will shape our lives. Goodness. Would you read Proverbs 27, 17 with me out loud? As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. This is the theme of the four-week series that we're in the middle of right now. Uh, the idea is that all of the relationships that God ordains, that God creates, shape us. They change us. That's, how, that's the kind of relation, that's what it means when God creates a relationship, whether that's marriage, whether that's friendship, whether that's uh, parents to child, whether that's leaders in a church to people in a church, whatever it is, that, that those relationships are meant to transform us in one way or another. My friend Ray Pate likes to remind people that when iron sharpens iron, literally, that sparks fly. And both of them are improved, but they also lose a little bit of themselves in the process. And I think that that's really true, and you'll see that in the story today. Last week, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and hear some of the foundational ideas in this, and also the story of Ruth and Naomi, and the way that we see these iron sharpened iron relationships in family. But this morning, we're focusing on the Old Testament story of David and Jonathan, and also all of these stories in one way or another of this whole series is going to focus also on Jesus himself in the New Testament and the ways that we can apply these to our lives. David and Jonathan were one of the most unlikely friendships that you could ever imagine. This was more than just like two people who might not get along. This was more of a predator and prey kind of a situation. Um, as the crown prince, uh, Jonathan was someone who um, by all rights, by all expectations, would have tried to kill David off rather than to become his friend. And uh, yet that's not what happened. It became one of the best examples of, of godly friendship that we have in scriptures. But in remembering this and kind of walking through this, I remembered a story several years ago from a little zoo in Tokyo where they went to feed a snake, and this happened. This is Gohan and Ao-chan, uh, the snake and, and a hamster who became friends. And uh, apparently they stayed friends until the, the little zoo went bankrupt and they let all their animals go. So we're not sure what happened there. But I have this tendency to like, when I'm researching something, I just can't stop. Like I wanna know everything. I, I don't know why, I'm just like that. So I, I, I saw this and I thought, I wonder if there's un unlikely animal friends otherwise. There is, there's a 150 year old tortoise that adopted a baby hippo when its family got killed in a tsunami. Uh, that was pretty cool. There's also a couple others here. There's a uh, dog and an elephant that are best friends. There's an orangutan and a dog who are best friends. <clears throat> it looks like the orangutan enjoys the friendship a little bit more than the dog does, I'm just saying. <laughs> but sometimes unlikely friendships are, are the best ones. They're the most life-shaping, they're the most iron sharpens iron kind of ones. And certainly David and Jonathan's was like that. We actually meet Jonathan before we meet David. If you're reading through 1 Samuel, which is where the story happens, in chapters 13 and 14, you first meet Jonathan, and he is awesome. He is this, he's the crown prince of Israel. He is a godly man. He is uh, 
buff and strong. He's a mighty warrior. He's brave. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Actually, I shared not too long ago about him, so I'll do it very briefly. But him and his armor bearer single-handedly free climbed a cliff, got to the top, and took out an entire garrison of Philistines, just the two of them, because his dad was kind of messing around and trying to decide whether they should fight that day or not, even though God had clearly said, do it. So he was like, hey, God said, do it. Let's just do it. I think we'll see. Let God sort it out on the other side. He was this kind of guy. He was brave. He was effective. He trusted God. He was, he was the crown prince. This is the guy who's going to be the next king of Israel. And that seems like a wonderful good thing, right? Except that wasn't God's will. Next we meet David in 1 Samuel 16. David, of course, is the grandson of Ruth that we talked about last week. Um, but also he is in the line of Christ. But nobody knew that at this point. He's just a little shepherd boy, the youngest of a bunch of brothers. I, 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 I tried and tried to find a great picture to use for this. I couldn't, so I found the cheesiest one. I, I, this, it, it looks like David's going, dude, you're getting it in my ear. What are you doing? I, I, I don't understand. But in this weird scene, Samuel comes to anoint this young man named David, and even he doesn't think that's probably the guy who should be, and yet God, as always, knew what he was doing. Jonathan is strangely absent from these couple of chapters, uh, but the next thing that happens is one of the most famous stories of all time. It's the story of David fighting Goliath. And um, I'm going to read this straight out of the scripture this morning, just this little part of it, uh, mostly because it's just really significant to the story that we're telling about friendship. It may not seem like it is, but it really is, and you'll see why in just a moment. And by the way, whenever I don't post uh, what scripture uh, version I'm, I'm reading out of, most of the time these days it's the New Living Translation. I just find that to be very simple as well as very clear and accurate. It's not the best one. It's not the only one. I'm not promoting them or anything, but I'm trying to be legally accurate when I post it and don't put what it is. That's usually what it is. That's what I'm reading from this morning. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. And this is where um, the Sunday school lessons usually stop. In the story, right? This is where we normally look at that. And we normally forget the fact that he's running at him, that this whole battle happened really quickly. Anytime I've seen this in a movie, it, that, that battle is like in slow motion, takes like 15 minutes. <sighs> but, but this is just like, he's just, he just runs at him, boom, and it's over, he knocks him out. And then, then, then this part, listen to this. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines. Skip ahead a couple verses. Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistines' head still in his hand. Sometimes we like to sanitize Bible stories, and I think it's almost always a mistake. Well, the, the, when he meets Jonathan, it's not in his best clothes, in his little, you know, man purse looking thing, you know, and he, it's, he's walking in, he's carrying Goliath's hand. 
He's still completely covered in blood from hacking off the guy's head with using his sword, Goliath's massive sword wasn't like this kind of sword, you know what I'm saying? It's, the, it's like a sledgehammer kind of an operation. And, and it's, it's this amazing moment, and that's very significant to the story and where we need to take it in a second. Strangely, again, I know my head derails in weird places, but this reminded me of an adventure camp experience that we had several years ago out at Smoky Mountain Christian Camp. Um, Many years ago, adventure camp wasn't as big as it is. We were just getting started. It was maybe 10, 15 kids per week. But man, it was still fun back then. And this one week, way back then, there was this one kid that came. He was from Chattanooga. And he cracked us up the whole week because his way of psyching himself up for things was to say it was his birthday. So he'd be about to jump off of a bridge or whatever random crazy thing we were about to do. And he'd go, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. It's my birthday. And then whenever somebody else was doing it, he'd do the same thing. He'd be like, you got this. It's your birthday. It's your birthday. And we, we just thought that was so funny that little it, it started snowballing. And by the end of the week, we were, we were all going, like, if somebody did something great, we'd go, happy birthday, dude. It, it, was, like, it was like it just kind of snowballed. Well, by the time we got to the night that we spent the night in the Lost Sea and did the extreme caving, this was kind of embedded in all of us. And we got to this one room. How many have ever been in the Lost Sea? Have, have you been the extreme tour? It's way better. You should try it. It's crazy. Anyway, um, but the, the, in the extreme, there's this one wall. And it's just this sheer slick wall. And the guy, died, he dared us. He said, I dare any of you guys to be able to climb that wall and put your fingers in the crack at the top and hang there for more than three seconds. And of course, we were like, challenge accepted. So we went for it, and we tried and tried and tried and tried. Some did better than others, but we all failed. So we finally said, hey, Show us how it's done. And I swear, I still don't know how exactly he did it, but he ran at the wall, somersaulted up it, stuck his hands into that crack, and just hung there. He could have hung there all night if he wanted to. And I remember it was the weirdest thing ever, but we just all stood there. First of all, it was just silence for a couple seconds, and then we all went, happy birthday to you. (laughs) It was just that moment. It was obviously this was the birthday boy. This is, this is, it, it was his birthday. Are you with me? So back to the scene in the story. Here's David walking up to the tent, carrying Goliath's head, still covered in blood. All right? 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan's king's son. And there was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. And from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David. Because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. If you think I research animals that are unlikely friends a little too much, you should see me when I'm researching something controversial or deep. I don't have time to go into all of it this morning, but I I make this offer. If anybody has questions about the whole Jonathan David thing, I will gladly walk you through that, all the years of research and everything, and several more hours just the last several weeks. But here's what I can tell you. They were not same-sex lovers. They were not. 
I, I can tell you that with all confidence. That was not what was going on here. Something way bigger and way deeper than that. Even though that's becoming a very, very popular and almost assumed interpretation of the story if you just start Googling David and Jonathan or start looking around. That is not what's happening here. And I say that very confidently. Here's what is happening. In this moment, Jonathan, being the godly and crazy, amazing, brave, selfless person that he was, he senses, seeing this dude standing there holding Goliath's head, that he is no longer the next king. And instead of trying to decide in that moment, like his dad started to, that he's going to take him out so that he can be king, in this moment, he decides the best thing he can do for God and for the kingdom and for himself is to join Team David. He said, this is, this is his birthday. This is the birthday boy. And so he goes, let me give you some birthday presents. And he gives him everything that represents that he is the crown prince. Everything that represents that he is the champion of Israel, the best fighter, the best military guys. He gives all of that to him and he just symbolically hands it to him. He goes, you're the dude and I'm on your team. That's, that's what's happening here. And if we miss that, we miss something amazingly beautiful and powerful that affects all of the friendships that we can have and all the relationships that we can have. It actually looks a lot like the way Jesus treated people. In Matthew 11, we see the same kind of astounding selflessness and generosity in Jesus himself when despite the protests and the anger and the disgust of the religious leaders of his day, he just consistently would spend time with what they just called sinners and tax collectors. People that they just wrote off. Jesus didn't write them off. He saw their sin and he didn't like it, but he also saw people. He didn't label them. He didn't say, you guys are tax collectors and sinners. He saw them as people. He saw them as possible family. He saw them as people who could be so much more. He offered them instant acceptance and he offered them the hope of real change. He opened them love and he opened them purpose and he offered them hope. He said, come to me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He didn't say, come to me, I won't even give you a burden at all. He said, I'm going to get roped in with you, and we're going to do this together. And, and honestly, love and acceptance and real hope, real faith in someone else is so much more easy to deal with than legalism ever could be. And ironically, the crazy thing is, Jesus expected so much more of them than the religious leaders would have. They just wanted them to follow the rules a little better. Jesus wanted them to become completely different people. But because he met them with acceptance and then also hope and also a challenge and also a, a, the offer to help them through this process, he attracted them so much. And this leads us to trying to get as practical as possible how this affects, all of this affects all of our relationships. And especially today we're focusing on one-on-one -on -one relationships, the friendships in our lives. Here's the first big action step. There's three of them. Here's the first one. If you would say this out loud with me. Choose relationships over tasks. Let's try that one more time. Choose relationships over tasks. This means several things, actually. One of them is you have to make time 
to be with the people that you want to have a relationship with. You have to create moments and spaces. We talked a lot about that last week. But you have to do that instead of just, you're, you're, ultimately your relationships are going to be more important than the, getting everything done on your to-do list. One way or another, the, the relationships that you have have the potential to be eternal. And they always have eternal consequences. But whatever task you're working on at the moment, what, however important it is, probably isn't eternal. And even if it is, that relationship is the point of the task that you're doing. That's part of what it means. Another thing that choose relationships over tasks means is people are people, not projects. If you treat people like projects, they're, they're going to push you away they're, because they feel pushed away. Okay? You don't love people, you don't label them and, love, and treat them that way. You treat them like people, like individuals. And when you do that, that's how Jesus treats all of us. When you do that, there's, there's so much more hope. Having said that, getting somebody to team up with you on a task, like Jesus said, come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, I'm going to work with you on this. That's actually a great way to build relationships, to do stuff together, to try and do tasks together is a big deal. But we've got to choose the relationships ultimately over tasks. We see this happening with David and Jonathan in their relationship. From that fateful moment when they met in 1 Samuel 18 on, David's success and his fame grew. Saul grew more and more jealous and fearful and angry and began to try to kill David. This was because his relationship with David was completely selfish. Jonathan, however, continued to ally himself with David, protecting him from his father. At one point, Saul even tried to kill Jonathan for that. Several times he sent Jonathan to kill David. Every single time he chose the other because his love for David, his relationship with David was completely selfless, not selfish. He was asking What's best for the kingdom? What's best for the whole thing? And he's choosing what's right. This story actually gets really funny. If you have time to read through, just start in around 13 and just keep going. It's amazing. And at this part in this story, it almost gets funny. It does get straight up funny at times. Because Jonathan and Saul and David, the whole thing becomes kind of like Robin Hood versus Prince John kind of thing. And there's these really strange moments in this part of this story. But what you see really consistently and where we really need to focus this morning is an unconditional, loyal, selfless, brave kind of love coming from Jonathan toward David and vice versa. It reminds me again so much of Jesus' love and the kind of love that he commands us to have for each other when he said this, there is no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because my master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. Which leads us to the second big action point for all of us in any relationship. We want to be healthy and strong. The kind of iron sharpens iron transformational relationships God loves. Let's say this one together as well. Choose the kingdom over yourself. One more time. Choose the kingdom over yourself. 
When, when I was preparing this, this series, I actually talked to everyone on the ministerial staff and Ray Payton, several others, trying to get the most, pra- trying to make it as practical as possible. And my, my dad actually gave me this idea, and it kind of is kind of central. It's under the surface of pretty much everything these whole four weeks. But this question to ask yourself, what's best for the kingdom instead of what's best for me? At any big decision, any big decision, especially if it involves a relationship you're in, if you ask that question in that moment, that's going to transform the whole situation for you. On a smaller level, sometimes, especially in a marriage situation or or an ongoing long-term friendship or family relationship, sometimes you just got to say, what's best for the relationship? What's best for this marriage rather than what's best for me? But in an even bigger sense to ask what's best for the kingdom what what kind of a story needs does this need to be when this story is told hundreds of years from now what 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 is best for the kingdom what's best for both of us in our relationship with God our example to the people around us all those we ask what's best for the kingdom not what's best for me Jesus consistently did that so did David and Jonathan here's just one more glimpse of that, just one of many throughout their story. First Samuel 23, verses 15 to 18. One day near Horesh, David received the news that Saul was on his way to Ziph to search for him and kill him. Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan reassured him. My father will never find you. You're going to be the king of Israel, and I'll be next to you as my father Saul is well aware. And so the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord, and then Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horesh. Jonathan and David both cared so much more about doing what was right, doing what they knew they needed to do, knew what needed to be done for themselves, for each other, for the kingdom, for God than what people thought about them at any given time. And this leads us to the third big action point, and the last one, actually, but it's huge. We're going to focus on this the rest of our time together this morning, so please read this with me and hang on. Here we go. Choose integrity over reputation. One more time. Choose integrity over reputation. Your integrity is who you are. It's who you are when nobody's watching. It's also who you are when everybody's watching. It's who you are when a couple of people are watching. It's just who you are. Your integrity is what you live for, what you believe in, what you want, what your, your motivation in life. Your integrity is, is who you are, what you aspire to be. It's all of that. It's the real you. Faults, yes. Failures, yes. But also undying success at trying to reach something. That's your integrity. Your reputation is what people think of you. Your reputation is what other people, and how they interpret those things that you do and those things that you say and the way that you live your life. And the sad truth is, here's a little life hack for you. The sad thing is your reputation and your integrity will almost never match up. And they will never match up 100% because none of us 100% knows each other as well as we as well as God knows us but your what others think of you is very rarely going to sync up that closely to who you really are and that's okay we need to get over that here's the, here's this special life hack I don't have time to focus on this but it's related I'm just going to throw this out here's an extra bonus truth this morning you ready if you focus on your reputation 
if you focus on trying to make people think you are a certain way. All that's going to come through to them really is that you're trying to manipulate them, that you're trying to convince them of something, that you're trying to pretend that you're something. That's what's going to come through, not that message that you're trying to tell them. But if you are relentlessly, truly stumbling sometimes, succeeding sometimes, but you're relentlessly going in a certain direction, that really is who you are. Eventually, most people at least are going to get it. Eventually, most people are going to believe it. Eventually, most people are going to understand that that really is who you are. And even then, there's going to be people who don't. But we choose that way. Now, the moment that Jonathan died, I actually got a little carried away there. We're going to have to go really fast here at the end, but jump with me. The moment that Jonathan and Saul died, David was expected to just say, whoo now I'm king. Let's, where's the crown? But instead he wrote a song called the Song of the Bow and sent it out to the rest of Israel. And in this is one of the most misunderstood but most important lines in this whole story. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. This is the line from the song. Jonathan, I miss you most. I loved you like a brother. You were truly loyal to me, more faithful than a wife to her husband. That is actually from the CEV translation. There are a lot of other translations. I like that one because it's closer to the heart of it and less distracting by all the things people throw at this story these days. Here's how a lot of the translations say it says, I, I, I loved you and your love, your love was amazing and your love was better than the love of a woman. Some people assume that's sexual. But again, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, if you want to take, I, I invite anybody, come with me. I've researched the fire out of this thing, and I know what I'm talking about, but all I can tell you is this. Here's what he's really trying to say. He's saying, your love, your selfless, kingdom first, me first love for me, your God-fearing, pure love was better than romantic love. It was better than sex. It was better than all this other kind of stuff that you and I both like and get into with women. Your love for me, Jonathan, was bigger than that. It was better than that. It was purer than that. I got more out of our relationship than I have with my marriage to your sister. And he wasn't afraid to say that out loud. And he wasn't say he didn't care if people misunderstood it. He was like, this is it. He actually told people they had to learn this lyric and, read, and sing it. Because he cared about his integrity more than about his reputation. And he had experienced that with Jonathan. Later, after Jonathan died, David found his son Mephibosheth. He basically adopts him, but he gives everything to uh, him, everything Jonathan would have passed on to him. He gives him all of that and more. And he keeps his promise. Even when he, as most kings did back then, turned over Saul's other descendants in a political deal and allowed them to be killed. He protected Jonathan's son Mephibosheth and would not let that happen. And again, it reminds us so much of Jesus in the way he was like this. As we start to wrap up this morning, please think about these ideas of Jesus and how it can affect you and me and all of our relationships this morning. Jesus had more integrity than anyone else has ever had. But he had a terrible reputation. That's why they killed him. That's okay. 
It's okay. It's okay if that's how we are as well. In fact, here's how little Jesus cared about it. That famous scene where someone came to wash his feet, a woman who everybody knows was a sinful woman, people who labeled her, that's all she is. She's just a sinful woman. He lets her wash his feet in the home of a Pharisee. He had a chance to actually make peace with these guys. They say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? He's like, sure. Hey, why don't you come in and... Yeah, go ahead and wash my feet right here in this guy's living room. Can you imagine? That's how little he cared about what people thought about him. That's how much his integrity was all that mattered, not his reputation. You know, honestly, there's a lot of things that we take for granted in our, in our life like that today. If people cared all about their reputation instead of what was real and what they knew in their heart had to be, here's some things that wouldn't exist in the world today. Desktop computers, smartphones, Airbnb, Kickstarter, eBay, Amazon, those sound familiar to you? Everybody hated those ideas and thought they were so terrible. Refused to invest in them when they first came out. Now they're taking over the world. When you focus on what's real and your integrity, you got a chance. When you focus on your reputation, you just killed your chance. Here's one more glimpse in Jesus' life. In John 8, when they bring an adulterous woman to him and, and they're going to stone her and they're trying actually to trick him. They're trying to get him to, to, to do something they can kill him for. But he says one line and disperses the crowd. Instead of arguing, he just kind of writes in the dirt. You've heard this story, I'm sure. But he says two things to her. First, he says, I don't condemn you. I'm paraphrasing slightly. But he makes it clear to her. He goes, look, I'm not judging you. And here's what, here's what that means. Condemn in scriptures when it says condemning someone or judging someone. Here's what it means. I don't write you off. I don't label you. I don't, I, don't, I don't see you only in the context of this sin that you did. I don't identify you as a sinful woman, as an adulterous woman. That's not who you are to me. You're more than that. I don't condemn you. It doesn't mean adultery is not a big deal to Jesus. He's part of the Godhead who gave that rule to Moses and it still stands. Okay. He's saying, I'm not labeling you as an adulteress. That's not who you are to me. And the second thing he says, I expect you to live a transformed life from this point on. I expect even this brief encounter with me to change who you are. He said, go and sin no more. This, it's not okay to stay the same on the other side of you meeting me. And that's how he treats all of us. That's how he always does. And I believe that's at least one of many possible applications of this verse that Paul wrote in Galatians. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Part of the good that we've got to do to everyone and especially to each other is to practice this kind of iron sharpens iron love. We've got to ask those questions and we've got to make sure we reassure each other. I don't label you. I don't judge you. I don't condemn you. I don't see you just as this one failure or even this one success. You're more than that. You're a person. You're not just a project. You're, you're family. You're not just some person I see sometimes. And when we act that way, when we genuinely treat them that way, we have a chance of actually making the insider culture of our church something that the outsiders want to be a part of. That's what we've got to focus on. Revelation 3. Jesus kind of dictated a letter to, through the Apostle John to a church that had kind of pushed him aside. 
He said basically, he uses the image that he's basically on the porch outside and he's knocking on the door. And he tells them collectively that they have pushed him outside. He's not even in their presence anymore because what they've been doing and what they've not been doing just was not in harmony with his will so much he's on the outside. And yet in Revelation 3.20 he says, but look, I stand at the door and knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. We're going to start this thing over just like it started in the beginning. We're going to eat together with fellowship together and we're going to expect change on the other side of that. That's the kind of friendships that shape lives. That's the kind of friendship that we can have with Jesus that shapes our life. And this is what I'm asking you this morning. Is Jesus standing on your front porch? Maybe even just one area of your life. Maybe completely across the board, you've never given your life to Jesus. This is your moment. You should just get it done. Let's take care of that this morning. Or maybe, maybe it's just one part of your life. Maybe it's just one area that you've just refused to, to let him sharpen. You don't want him to knock those things off. You don't want to see those sparks fly. You don't want to feel the pain of that, even though that you know it's good for you. But whatever you need to do with Jesus this morning... Whatever you'd like to do, if you just need prayer, we can pray with you. There's going to be somebody here and someone at the back by that door back there if you just want prayer. If you need to come forward to give your life to Christ, if you'd like to join our church officially, whatever you'd like to, I invite you to do that. But as we stand and sing, this is my, my prayer, my challenge to you. Jesus is knocking. Open that door wide. Let him in. Know that he doesn't judge you. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't label you, but he expects change on the other side of that meal together.